Hello and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Wednesday, May 9th, 2012. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week's show, we're going to discuss writing API docs before API code, why progressive enhancement is better than graceful degradation, and reminisce about the lost art of writing SQL queries. You ready for that? <laughs> here we go. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Yeah, I just wasn't expecting you to call that quickly and, and didn't have the headset on. <laughs> gotcha. Oh yeah, I'm pretty quick once I get uh, once I get around to my sweet time to doing something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's you know four and a half hours. That's not a bad delay at all. <laughs> yeah, man. Let me tell you, I had like like uh actually it was good news and bad news trip yesterday so i flew back down to florida uh at 6 a.m yesterday and then flew back at 6 p.m and there was this awesome lightning storm in miami when i was you know right around the time we were supposed to board and uh, you know that delayed things of course but it was so cool looking you know, because you're sitting in this gigantic bank of windows and lightning bolts are just like crashing down on the runway. It was, oh, nuts. Cool. It was nuts. So obviously those dudes that stand out there were like, yeah, I'm not going out there right now. <laughs> but then I missed my uh, connection in Atlanta. And kiddingly, I said to the gate agent, I was like, well, there's a flight to Boston. If I have to sit in first class, I'll suffer through it. And uh, so she totally put me in first class on a flight to Boston instead of Providence. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, then what, take the train from Boston? Uh, It was after midnight, so I had to take a car. Ah. Mm. So it was cheaper than first class, but a car from Boston to Providence is not cheap, so. Oh, yeah. So anyway, so I was dragging this morning, and then Cooper was uh, in rare form. Yeah, they uh, they always pick up that, on that when you're tired. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, good, I can take advantage of Dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's going on in Kentucky? Uh, uh, nothing. I I sit here all sat here all day yesterday, melting because our air conditioner was broken, and I got it fixed last night. And it's like sixty eight degrees out today. <laughs> yeah, it's like washing the car and then it rains. Yeah. So what do we say we're going to talk about today? I, I know I was going to talk about progressive enhancement, uh, and you and you had sort of a related topic, but it's escaping me. Um. Yeah, I think we were going to talk about um, documenting the, the API documentation first. Oh, first yeah, 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 we were yeah, taking. yeah, 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 that's cool. That's really cool. And I think we should start a segment called the bug report. Yeah, I think so. I think it'd be funny. So we've kind of been talking about um, in previous episodes, kind of follow up on the whatever the episode before was and say like, oh, you know, this is what happened with that. Um, and this week I, f I have like on this week's bug report, <laughs> I've got like a list of stuff for Avalio. Speaking of which, it seems like you updated the, uh, the registrars so that they're smart instead of yes. just static. Yes, it did. Awesome. When was that? Um, I think last Friday. Cool. I just saw that. Uh, so Valio, in case you didn't know, is the, our mobile optimized uh, domain search 
and it's a funny little app that uh, it's like a test bed for for mobile bugs and and trying to make something sort of work awesome everywhere. Uh, and it's amazing how when you really try and polish something up like like crazy, uh, it's like a whack-a-mole with the bugs. It is. It never ends. Yeah. I've got, I just went through and I was just thinking like, oh, let's do this bug report thing. And I was like, oh, I'll look at a value. There's always bugs there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, I've been editing it too. So, okay. Um, and one of the, and I like quickly came up with four things that, um, that are just like, it's, it's almost like, what's the solution? You know, the, it's almost like the code could just grow forever, uh, as you cover more and more bases. And it's almost like this, you know, the solution is to lower your expectations and yeah at some point do you just say okay it's good enough right and that's definitely true but i think it's fun it's such a simple little app that it's kind of fun to uh to do the whack-a-mole thing with the bugs yeah yeah and just see how far we can take it right right so one i noticed actually yesterday i was on um you know i was on my phone a lot yesterday traveling and I had it was my iPhone that I had with me, and I was I don't know what I was looking up, but of course I'm always looking up domain names. And I uh, I had added one of us added focus a focus highlight a little while back so that uh, you could use it on your TV and navigate with a D pad or with a trackball and like a Nexus One and see where the cursor focus was. So if you clicked on on whatever the element uh, whatever you're using to control the navigation you know, you'd be able to see what you were focused on. Because without that, you just, you actually have focus on an element and don't know what it is, which is, which I think is really bad. That's, that's definitely bad. You need to know what the focus is if you do have some kind of pointer device. So we put that in and, and that in um, conjunction with adding touch support for touch devices created an interesting little um, sort of conflict that I wasn't, it's sort of obvious when you think about it, but it hadn't occurred to me before, which is that the uh, touch events that we're using on touch devices to make the uh, interface responsive don't trigger a focus event. So if you if you touch very quickly, for example, on the top tab navigation, you can tab between different portions of the interface without triggering a, a focus event, which means that if you click so if you kind of like do a real press on the screen and really trigger a click event on one of the tabs it gains focus and it has like this pink highlight around it and then you can tap on the other tabs and the pink highlight stays on the tab that you're not on so i was like oh my god it's almost like it's almost like you want to you know like i said lower the bar like take the touch events off i think the focus is important but uh yeah i think so but the touch events are also important, so it's it's like all right. So now what do we do? Now we add focus on touch end, you know. So anyway, we'll we'll uh, I'll play with that and see what the solution is. I think they're both important, so it'd be nice to find like a a nice middle ground where tapping added focus and as well as clicking. Yeah, it would. And actually, I think when you when you add the touch events, the focus kind of even becomes more important because it becomes so responsive and it, you know if you're optimized for a mobile device you know if you're on a phone or a, or something like that you're going to i feel like it's going to be a lot you're going to need to know where your focus is a lot more you yeah. know just simply because accidental touches and what have you it's easier to lose focus yeah definitely yeah for sure 
So then another thing was, then this has been a bug for a long time I've never brought up. Um, and this one is, this is sort of a long story, but it there's, you know, it's kind of like a Google style interface where there's one search field and one button and then results show up below it. And on iOS devices, it's worth um, calling that field, you know, so the field's an input, uh, HTML input, and the type is search. And the reason we use search instead of text is that uh, it pulls up a slightly different keyboard uh, on the iPhone. So where the uh, the default button on the keyboard says search instead of go or something like that. Yeah, I think I, think I have that right. And it also, you know, in different browsers, it will display a search field differently, like Safari on the desktop will make the corners very rounded and add a, an X to clear the field. And for some reason that I don't know why, and I like that X, and I particularly would like it in mobile Safari and on the mobile devices so that you can easily clear the field without having a back, 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 back. Backspace, back. yeah. And for some reason it's never shown up on mobile Safari and it, it cuts it cuts off in some desktop browsers strangely so you can't see the whole button and something I never really uh something I was like nah, that, you know that's it it's not that big a deal but I find that it really annoys me it's continued to annoy me so that's something I'm going to look into and come up with uh, a fix for you know investigate it figure out why it's happening first of all and then see what the best way to fix it is I mean yeah, it it could well be a CSS CSS issue with the way we've got that that form input styled yeah, I'm almost positive that is what it is. Um, but there was a, re but I, but I also recall there's a reason I did that. So it's, it's again, it's this situation. Um, it's this sort of compromise between okay, um, you know, I want it to be a search field. I want it to have the Xbox in there, but I don't want it to look like the default search field on mobile because it's too small. So I have to style it, and it, the styling is you know if the styling's screwing things up you know so it's and i know you can, i know it's doable but then it's a question then you've got the other competing sort of factor which is i don't want to add 300 lines of css or javascript to make this work and then end up debugging all of that on you know everything from a nexus one to a tv so it's uh it's super super crazy just like a tiny little thing like that and here's another one i just came across which is if you have a lot of items in either your history or in your favorites and mm -hmm. you scroll way down to the bottom and this I'm not sure if this is new or not. I don't know if this is from a recent change that we made or if it's been like this the whole time, but I feel like it's new. Uh, if you're scrolled way down to the bottom of a list on, on let's say the, the, the history and you tap on a search, it switches to the search tab, but it doesn't scroll to the top. So you're like, it doesn't look like anything happened. You know, you don't get a page. Obviously, you don't get a page load because it doesn't doesn't do a page load. But uh, you don't get any indication that something's happening. It basically the screen just goes white, like everything disappears. Right. I I don't think it's new. I just don't think it's anything that we had kind of accounted for to begin with. And that would actually be simple to fix. Just you just set the scroll to in the JavaScript. And yeah, take absolutely. it back up to the top of the page. Absolutely, but of course that'll probably have repercussions downstream elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, so that that one I do. I I think you're right though. I think that one's a really minor one. And and then I noticed that you did the offline messaging is now working, which is really cool.
Yay. Yay. I'm, I'm glad because I, I didn't have a good way of testing that because <laughs> my husband, um, Richard was always teasing me about not remembering the Wi-Fi password. Yeah. So, which was really, it's a really, it was a really simple password. So he said, if you're not going to remember it, I'm going to give you a reason not to. And now it's 64 <laughs> random characters. <laughs> so every time I have to kind of delete my, my Wi-Fi on a device, I, I cry a little. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Well, couldn't you just, is that, that's what you do? Like, why don't you just go into airplane mode? Uh, I could do that. That would be much simpler. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah. I thought, I thought airplane mode would leave the, leave the internet connection, but disable the cell phone usage. So, I mean, I've never actually used airplane, airplane mode on an airplane, so I wasn't sure how that worked. Ah, uh, no, it kills the radios. You can you uh, on an iPhone you can go into airplane mode and then turn Wi-Fi back on, but by default it shuts everything off. Uh, so you can be in airplane mode and on Wi-Fi at the same time, but that's not the way it works by default. Okay. So it does work. The message is showing up now, but the CS we need to fix the CSS because it's um it's the navigation tabs are overlapping it. So like whatever the whatever the it's just wrapping funny and overlapping funny. So, but it totally works oh, okay. now, which is great. Sounds and, like another another Z index issue. Uh, yeah, it's all well. It's also even if the Z index was right, it would be there would be overlap. Something would be overlapping. So I think the solution right. really is to just make the offline message shorter. If it was about if it was one line high, it would be perfect. So that's a easy another easy fix. I hope. Yeah. So that's cool. So I'll do. Uh, you don't have to worry about that. I'll just do a little um, CSS styling to um, the offline message so that it. Uh, it's a little shorter and then it'll be above the tabs will be perfect okay so nice work on that thank you <laughs> so let's talk about the um, uh, API docs and building API docs before you actually build an API um, if I if I was just gonna give a little intro on that I would say that uh, on the one hand it sounds obvious like duh you know decide what you're gonna build before you start building it um, but I think doing the actual documentation takes it a step further, uh, where you're getting in, in the past when, even when in general, when I've worked on APIs just with, you know, alone and also with you in the past, kind of like have a discussion about what it should do, a whiteboard style thing. And then, um, you know, you start digging into it and these questions come up and you answer the questions, but coding has been happening. And it's been my experience that um, going back and forth about the docs raises all of the exact same questions and no coding has started. Right. It's, it's very similar. It's, it's like the design phase on, you know, on anything with an, inter with an interface. Mm -hmm. You know, you design your user user interface driven development, I guess, where you do the design phase first and then move into development. It's it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, it feels like it. I, I mean, it, it's like head slappingly obvious to me now that we've been doing it, but and they're both interfaces, right? So it's kind of like right. you, you do have to work out that that client facing portion of it. Really, it's smart to work out the client facing portion of it before you start doing the plumbing. I mean, it's, it's like, duh, but it, since APIs are kind of like a headless interface, I just never gave them, I never, never f just went that detailed at the beginning. 
No, we would, I mean, we would sit down and we would plan out, you know, these are some of the routes we want and some, you know, how our data structured them and just kind of work from there. But then we would always run into issues later on like, oh, well, do we need an additional route to get these nested resources or what have you? And like you said, going through documentation first, it, it really just kind of solves a lot of those because you can just, as you write the documentations, you can just better visualize the workflow. Yeah, absolutely. It almost becomes anticlimactic to build it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, writing writing the documentation, it turns out, is sometimes the hardest part. Yeah, isn't that crazy? That's where you have all the discussions and you get, and, you know, we're using Happy Docs to do the documentation, and which includes um, all of the questions that we would often would often get raised as we were going through the API development phase, which is the wrong place to be asking questions like, um, should this have be rate limited or should this particular resource require authentication? What, what type of HTTP header do you want to return? Right. What is the, what is the response? What should the response look like? You know, you, you kind of, what ends up happening is you do the obvious thing and then, and then, or the, either the obvious thing or the, um, the minimum viable product thing, which is like, well, obviously I'm going to return the model, um, you know, kind of like a, if you, you know, you do it like a specific get request for a resource and return the model, duh. But, you know, do I want to include nested resources inside of that or, you know, what, what all is going to go into that? And that can turn into a fair amount of rework, right? Right. Yeah. So the, Doing, anyway, doing the documentation has really surfaced a lot of these questions way in advance and having a framework to do the documentation makes it a lot less painful, right? I mean, you've been, you know, really, I've, I've done very little in there, but I've, you know, played with it and tested it out and added some simple APIs in there. And it's like, I'm not going to say it's fun, but <laughs> but it's close. It's a, you know, it's a lot easier. Yeah, I've been I've been using Happy like crazy. Mm -hmm. And um, it's it's really really saved a lot of time. You you still end up doing just as much writing, but the way it's set up, it just kind of walks you through the whole process, mm -hmm. and it's just it's just a lot easier because there are, there are some pretty standardized things that you're going to need for every resource that you just you just don't have to think about them because they're there. You just fill them in, and you know you don't you're not gonna you're not gonna forget to do something there's it's just you know everything has a standard structure and it just makes it a lot a lot easier to write and a lot easier to read and i mean you can you can sit there and you can spit out 40 or 50 pages of documentation in no time in it. Mm -hmm. yeah and it's, and also i find that it gives you a way to say um so if you're going through the documentation you're the one that's really thinking it through and then you come to a kind of a, a question which is either a business decision or maybe it's just something we didn't talk about you can forward me a link and I can just look at it and you know, you don't have to like go through this big description of, of the whole context and the way everything's working. You just send me the link and I'll be like, Oh, right. Yeah. We should definitely, definitely nest the response like this or, you know, because I might have information about, about how the user interface is going to look and that it would be uh, easier to, let's say, include more information in the response or, or, uh, we won't be able to authenticate that or those data points are for the wrong model or, or whatever. Right. So that's, again, it's like, it's head slappingly obvious that you should be doing, doc, um, well, I don't know. What do you think? Is it, it's. And I think it's obvious after you've done it for a bit, but I mean, looking back on it now, I think, yeah, why didn't we do that all along? 
but I think a lot of times kind of kind of the general workflow for people who do development and I guess maybe web development especially is you know you you write your code and you either write your documentation simultaneously or after the fact or maybe you have someone else working on documentation you know that's like, you know the same people that are doing QA or even or what have you right yeah I guess you know you're right it's it's I think it it's I think the obvious thing is that you should plan what you're going to build first but actually doing documentation for it before you build it I don't feel is standard practice because you're right it's like usually QA or customer not customer service in this case but a lot of times it's QA that's or someone after the fact documenting what got built you know and it's and there's a certain logic to that in that um, if you do the documentation first and then you change your mind in the in the actual API build you have to go back and update the documentation but that is like and so far that's been trivial right I mean, that has not right. happened much because everything is so baked by the time you're done with the docs yeah it lets you let you work through a lot of the issues that would come that would end up causing rewrites right so huge fan of huge fan of doing documentation for the apis before you do it so if if you haven't checked out happydocs.net dear listener you should give it a shot if you're building uh, rest apis in particular uh, it's it's super cool all sorts of cool output formats so what else so that kind of leads me into the leads me into a talk about progressive enhancement um, I've you know in kind of like doing step one before step two kind of thing yeah and I recently got uh, thrown onto a project super fun I can't wait till it's uh, launched so we can really get into the details and share some links uh, maybe even do a case study on it, but the the basic concept was I needed to build um, an image gallery that would run on older mobile devices, so let's say BlackBerry Four, for example, and uh, but also run on you know iOS, uh, iPhones, iPod Touches of various ages and capabilities. Uh, BlackBerry Playbook, uh, Kindle Fire, Android phones as far back as 2.1, Android 2.1, uh, all different shapes and sizes, uh, trackball support, yada, yada, yada. And the, the, the experience was not going to be lowest common denominator experience across all devices. It needed to be as polished as possible for each one. And the uh, and this is one of those situations where the design was delivered from someone else and was not alterable. So in cases where and, and this can happen, this uh, this is sort of an ongoing issue. I suppose it's been true with web development all along. Is that the marketing department can <coughs> deliver a design that's unimplementable, mm -hmm. uh, and that wasn't quite the case here. Although I was a little bit nervous, it might be. Um, it wasn't unimplementable, but there were a couple of couple of things that had they been had I been able to talk them out of, um, would have cut the development time in half or maybe more. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's, it's so, but anyway, we can work up to that. So in a situation like this in the past, uh, maybe, geez, what year is it? Maybe 2009, I would have first like built the iPhone version of it because that's the fun one. You know, like that's the probably the most capable browser. That's the most, they're the least fragmented. Uh, hardware, at least fragmented platform, basically. 
So I jump in that and be like, oh, okay, great. So I'll build this. It'll look awesome. It's going to be totally primo. And then I'll just have it degrade nicely for other devices uh, and then and tweak it to work on Android. I've done that in several situations for various things, whether they are uh, uh, proof of concept things or, or that's the way the project was delivered to me. Um, and it's, it's really painful uh, just to, to put it lightly. I mean, it's a, it's a, again, it's like we were talked about earlier, it's this game of whack-a-mole, but it's not just bugs. It's also design issues. So you're not just worrying about broken functionality. Um, there's also, you know, just like weird, uh, behavior with like hiding the location bar or the CSS is functioning differently, um, on, on Android 2.1, but everywhere else it works. Uh, you know, th these sorts of things it becomes really, really difficult to, ever get to a place where you feel confident about what you're delivering. So this time around, I decided to um, take it from the bottom up. So, so instead of degrading gracefully, I was going to progressively enhance. And I know logically from the past year or so of doing proof of concepts and workshops and that sort of thing, I know logically that that's the way to do it. Uh, but I hadn't had a sort of large, um, large project to really test it on to tell you the truth so I was very mm -hmm. excited about this project for that reason so I started with the weakest phone that it needed to run on which was the uh, in my case a Blackberry Bold and I designed I, I did it in in uh, in uh, iterations where I said okay first I've got my design and I just marked it up semantically in HTML so that uh, it the the resulting page would be readable and relatively pleasing without JavaScript and even without CSS. So you could get almost like a WAP-like experience with um, this particular phone. So I went through that, and of course, that worked perfectly on every platform, and it took me like an hour, right? So if it weren't for the design, I could have said, done, you know, here's, here's your, here's your uh, working final product. Everything works. Right didn't look that great, but it, it did. But it worked. Yeah, it worked and it was like, it, it worked and it made sense, but it wasn't going to win any design awards. I guess put it like that. Right. So then the next pass was the CSS. So I said, all right, um, let me go through, actually, let me back up a step because even uh, having taken that step to make sure everything worked with HTML covered all my bases for things like, um, you know, BlackBerry Bold is not a touch screen device. Uh, it's it's got that sort of like uh, trackpad interface, uh, and and having the HTML semantically correct and uh, the source order the way that it needed to look to make sense to a, a guest or a user um, meant that all of the all of the focuses, all the clicks, all of that stuff worked like out of the box, no problem. Same with the Nexus One, the trackball on the Nexus One. Uh, same with the TV. TV wasn't the wasn't a target device, but you get the idea. Right. So then I went with the CSS, and and even with a little bit of CSS, I think the final file is under a hundred lines. It's definitely under two hundred lines. I was able to nudge everything into place, uh, get it all looking very close to the um, the mockups, and and really, I mean, I I close to flawless on all of the devices so that was and that again that didn't that probably took uh maybe half a day to get everything 
tweaked and tested across all these. Maybe I was testing on uh, four or five different devices. Next phase after the CSS was to add JavaScript. This took a little longer. And, um, and what that did was with the JavaScript, I was, before the JavaScript, everything was just like a static HTML page. And then I added the JavaScript and I did some things like checking the uh, inner height and width of the window. And if we were in portrait mode, I would uh, fix the footer to the bottom and have, you know, be able to toggle it open and closed. And that's sort of, I don't want to go into too much detail until everything is live, but, um, but with some simple, simple JavaScript, uh, I was able to make the interface a lot better across all the devices that supported JavaScript. And still with the, with the devices that didn't support JavaScript, you just got this nice looking HTML page. So then that's when touch came in. It was like, all right, the, the, the image gallery um, behavior that they wanted was to have, you know, be able to swipe left to see the next photo in the gallery or swipe right to, to go to the previous one. And the, there's a massive amount of complexity with something that sounds like not such, such a simple thing. Um, because what ends up happening is the, the, animation behavior that they were looking for was that as you swiped left, the current page would be going out of view and the, the new page would be coming into view. So you'd be seeing pieces of both pages and all sorts of weird things can happen with that in a browser, depending on how you implement it. Uh, for example, if the pages are two different heights, you have to worry, which they almost certainly are going to be because there's variable amount of content in them. Uh, you have to be careful to control their heights so that they are the same somehow. Uh, you have to uh, be careful with your, um, you can't really use IDs for your CSS styling because if the two pages are there at the same time and there's uh, something called like photo wrapper, uh, sorry, a, a, an image with an ID called photo or a wrapper around that called a div ID photo wrapper, once you've got those two pages in the view, the IDs uh, aren't going to work. You know, you have to only have IDs have to be unique on a page. So you have to make sure you use classes everywhere. And then right, once you conflict, right. And then if you're using classes everywhere, now your JavaScript performance is going to go down if you have a large DOM because you can't just like zip right into a specific element, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so to add this one piece and by the way, continue to support all of the click style functionality turned into, you know, probably three X of the time I had spent to, uh, to get the, the first thing rolling, uh, to get the, that just sort of simple HTML, CSS, JavaScript version rolling. As soon as you, as soon as we got into the touch events and handling the swipe, it's a whole different beast. But the, I guess the moral of the story is that if I had started with that, which was the, which was, I mean, in all honesty, that was the fun part. The fun, yeah. the fun part was making that work. Uh, and if I had sort of, if I was a little less mature about my approach and just jump straight to the fun piece, I would have been screwed when I tried to degrade that experience down. And then essentially I would have ended up rewriting it anyway, because I would have done it differently if I was handling, if I started with just handling touch events for all the interactions, as I tried to degrade gracefully down to the the previous versions, I would have had to keep rewriting the touch piece 
built on top of it because I would have been getting conflicts the whole way. So it would have been essentially a complete waste of time to try and keep the touch stuff working while I was, while I was uh, essentially building stuff underneath it that was, you know, just handling simple clicks and CSS and, and all that stuff all the way down. So yeah, so the moral of the story is that it was a huge time savings and, and just like a, a much decreased level of frustration uh, doing all of this, all the old school web, de simple web development stuff first, building up to the more sophisticated things like touch event handling and CSS transitions and all the stuff that it takes to, to make a page, you know, two pages slide left to right in a view. <laughs> yeah, cleaner code too, no doubt. Oh yeah, right. And that, that's actually a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, we were talking about uh, using, uh, well, when the, when the team came to me to have me do this piece, they were, you know, they said, well, I think you get all of this stuff for free with jQuery mobile. So we're using jQuery on the main site anyway. So maybe just throw jQuery mobile in there. And that seemed, I was like, yeah, fine. I mean, getting it for free is great. Um, but it turned out that we, it, it's, it's getting it for free is an overstatement. So uh, a couple of couple of issues. So first of all, jQuery is a fairly jQuery itself is a fairly good size, but we were going to include that anyway, so that wasn't negotiable. Uh, the jQuery Mobile is also pretty good size library, and all we were really going to use it for was the um, the prefetching of the URLs and the transition. Mm -hmm. And it's something like. I think the combination of jQuery and jQuery mobile together is something like 50k. I, I could be totally off, but it, it was big. It was big enough so that if we were uh, that on a BlackBerry, it was taking like 45 seconds for each page to load, which is obviously way too long. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's actually my biggest complaint with jQuery mobile is its size. Yeah. I mean, there, the, the goal of jQuery mobile is great, which is that you know, one web, right? You know, we want, we don't want different mobile sites. We don't want that, you know, mobile desktop, it doesn't matter. You should create a page and it should run everywhere and it should just magically work in all these places. Uh, the, the, and, and they do an amazing job. In fact, the latest version, uh, which I just looked at, I think it's 1.1, um, was, is, is a big upgrade over previous versions. It's really, really nice. That said, it's not really, it's not really fair to say, you know, that you're, you're creating a great experience for all browsers when it takes 30 seconds or 45 seconds for everything to load. You know, that's when you could just leave it out and have a nice looking web page that loads in three seconds, you know, cause that my, my BlackBerry phone's pretty slow in general. So the 45 seconds is probably sounds, it's probably, you know, your mileage may vary because this phone is not great. Um, but the, the point is, I was like, you get a very dependable cross browser experience using jQuery mobile in terms of the look and feel and the animations and the history handling. It's amazing. There's tons of great stuff in there. The thing you lose is the performance. And, uh, if someone who uses jQuery mobile more might be able to refute that a little bit, but <laughs> You know, I, I don't see how, I mean, the size is the size and the phone has right. to process it. So, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, it's a balancing act either way. You have to have to choose, do you want the performance or the reliability in it? You know, I guess it's just something you have to evaluate on a, on a project by project basis mm -hmm. because I can, I can see 
pros and cons to both ways. So. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely agree. And the situation here was that, I mean, I wrote the, the final JavaScript I wrote is, it's like 200 lines long. So clearly I was not getting the benefit of, if had we used jQuery mobile, we wouldn't be getting the benefit of all the great things that it provides because we weren't even using it. We weren't using the themes. We weren't using anything. Uh, we were just using the, we would have just been using uh, basically the, the history handling and the Ajax response, the Ajax stuff uh, that, you know, page transition stuff. So it, I, I, and I said to the, you know, I, I talked it over the team and I was like, look, I mean, I just, if we were using jQuery mobile to really do the site, you know, and, and it was actually going to be formatting all of our lists and we were using it for form elements and all of that stuff. Okay. That's one thing. But in this case, all we were doing was just one little piece of it. And I was like, you know, it might, it might, I could probably implement this faster with jQuery mobile than I can from scratch because the couple hundred lines of code I wrote, you know, took a lot of testing and iteration and we would have gotten that stuff for free from jQuery mobile, but you know, the, the end result would have been extremely slow loading pages. So, you know, on certain browsers. So, you know, the decision was let's do it from scratch. And like you said, balancing act. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like a lot of what we do is a balancing act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I actually had a similar experience the first time. First time I did responsive design with media queries, I um, actually kind of did it. Uh, I started started with the the desktop version and worked my way backwards to the mobile, and it was just that's that's a horrible way to do responsive design. Yeah, it doesn't. It almost doesn't work. You end no. up redoing the desktop design. Yeah, I ended up ended up there was a lot of of CSS duplication in there that there didn't need to be. The CSS just just got huge. Yeah, and you know you just just start from the small resolution and work your way up. Yep, exactly. And I had I had that exact experience with responsive design when I started working with it, where I, I already had a desktop site and I wanted to make a mobile version, so I did all of the you're like you're like doing everything backwards. Where right. You're trying to pull stuff out of CSS, which doesn't work nearly as well as adding stuff in. So, uh, so that was in fact the pattern that I was following with this JavaScript development, this gallery mm -hmm. development, because I wanted to essentially do. I I knew from doing responsive design, which pretty much was just the CSS, that if I started from the uh, the most basic foundational levels and worked my way up you know, it would be way easier. And I'm extremely pleased with the way it went. Yeah, that's, that's just the way to do it. And more and more, I'm just a big advocate of that. And which is, you know, also there too, you take it to another level. And, and that's how we end up with the API first development. Right. <laughs> yeah. So like my three big things have been in the past, I, I would always say, you know, there's Luke Robluski's mantra is mobile first. And, you know, if you recognize that that's where you should be going first, and there's a couple of several reasons for building mobile first, but you can't just do mobile first because there's some other things you have to do first too. Um, I think we're coming to the realization that if you're building an API, then doing the documentation first is, is certainly something that is well worth your time. Yeah, what's the expression? Uh, what's your, uh, a week of development can. Yeah. Um, Weeks of development can save hours of planning. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's exactly it. So if you do mobile first, you have to do a lot of, make a lot of hard decisions early on in the project. And then you 
and then you are sort of progressively enhancing up to desktop real estate. Um, if you start with uh, your API documentation first, you get all those questions. All those discussions happen before you start coding, so you get a lot of those that's those decisions made early on. Um, with the uh, with the development that I'm talking about, the progressive enhancement style instead of graceful degradation, those two things are sometimes used interchangeably, but they're not the same thing from a process standpoint. So I, I think that's a you know starting with the most basic development of the page and working your way up is huge. Uh, and then the other one that I'll often often call out, but doesn't apply to us as much because we're not we're mostly in the app business and not in the site business uh, mm -hmm. is the is is content first. So get your get your content um, perfect and and output agnostic in your CMS and then it will be, you know, you want it to be able to stand on its own wherever it's going to end up showing up because you have no idea where it's going to show up. But that's a talk for another day. But, but you know, content first, mobile first, and API first are the, the, the things that I hammer on with clients. And, uh, and maybe I'll amend it to be content first, mobile first, and API documentation first. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the whole point of the API first, though, is to get the content perfect. Because your your API responses should be completely platform agnostic, and you you get that working. Write your documentation, build your API, then go to your, you know, then start with your client and do progressive enhancement through your client. Right. Yeah, we had we did an exercise with um, Hatch, which we haven't formally released. That was um, where when we built the API. We wanted it to be sort of, I mean, I don't know what the, I don't know what the term, I mean, I want to say client agnostic, I guess that's the right term. Um, and we were, we were like, I was like, I'm going to build a command line interface to interact with this API to test it. I, I found it really interesting building an API that needed to run in a non-browser environment. It was extremely eye-opening there were points where I didn't know what to do. Like I had no, I was like, I don't know how to do this. Like, how am I going to maintain a session? Right. You know, it, it was, uh, and that was also before we really drank the rest Kool-Aid a hundred percent. Yeah. And before we got into the big, into the, um, the testing. Right. Right. So that's, I mean, that's sort of a, an old topic, but, um, but the process of building, like a responsive design starting with mobile and working your way up and the process of building like a really nice site experience that's going to run on a lot of devices is, you know, you got to start from, start from the, the weak devices and work your way up to the good ones. And you'll find that it's just so, it's just a lot less of that whack-a-mole experience. Yeah. The, the end result is a lot more accessible too, whether you're talking about accessing it, you know, from with a screen reader or, some kind of alternate input device, or, you know, even if you do just need to run something against it from the command line. Exactly. Like talk about getting stuff for free. You know, there, there, there are probably thousands of models of device that I'll never be able to test this, this new gallery on. And odds are good that it's just going to work because I'm not doing any browser sniffing. I'm doing a little bit of feature detection with modernizer, but other than that, it's, it's, it's mostly HTML, CSS, some simple bare bones JavaScript, 
and then uh, some sophisticated JavaScript and sophisticated CSS for touchscreen devices. Mm -hmm. So if you do have touchscreen, then it, it sort of, it gets a little slicker. So if you jump, I, if I haven't tested it on the TVs, but I'll bet you it works great. So let's see, that's probably. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot else to talk about. I've been, I've been fighting with large data today. <laughs> and today and yesterday and and uh just writing sql queries that are just kind of kind of massively large and convoluted yeah and well, i mean they're not they're not like one page queries or anything but compared to compared to what we've been working on they're just they're pretty complex queries and i i was thinking about it yesterday as, as i was working on it i kind of think uh writing sql queries is sort of becoming a lost art at least in some segments of web development with so many frameworks and, and ORMs out there. I think a, a lot of people, you just don't have the need or the chance quite as often to just get your hands dirty and, and just write a query, <laughs> yes. which I guess is good in a lot of cases because it just gets rid of, eliminates a lot of redundancy. But sometimes, sometimes you end up doing weird things. Like in the case that we're doing, we have to scrub through and analyze like one and a half million records and and build statistics on that, and you know, you just there's there's not an ORM out there that's gonna gonna do that for you. Yeah, I don't know. This is the first reporting thing we've done in a long time. It's the first first reporting thing. I can't remember the last one I did. It's probably probably going back to two thousand and eight or nine, and that's when you really start, you know, building dashboards and charts and that sort of thing. You have to use aggregate functions, and I don't know. I haven't really looked, but it doesn't seem like the kind of thing an ORM would be good at. Yeah, no, I, I don't think so because we're, you know, even in your ORM, if you can do, you can do joins and joins and functions, SQL functions and what have you, it just seems like it's just adding a layer of complexity that doesn't need to be there. Mm. Like you might be, you might be able to shoehorn this into an ORM and make it work, but you know, it's it's just just sit down and write the query. Right. Yeah, at some point, at some point, you want just a, a function in your ARM that's like execute SQL, you know, yeah. and pass SQL to the database. It's because I, you know, I looked at some of the ones you were. I was like impressed. You were pulling out some uh, some SQL functions I've never even seen. So, well, I'll confess that I had help on some of that. I see. It was cool stuff, though. Yeah, like what, yeah, one I, of them was, was like consulting one... a friend on some of it. But yeah, it was. I was definitely I was making SQL my SQL do things yesterday that I didn't know it could do. So that was always fun. Yeah, you're doing some like date math in there. I never heard of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was cool. Possibly a topic for a future podcast. <laughs> I kind of uh, it's a like my little dark secret is that I I secretly like writing really complicated SQL queries because they're just little puzzles. I just <laughs> yeah. love getting it and figuring them out. I like doing them if you know. I like doing them when it's for fun. But if it's for like a project and I just wanted the freaking results, I'm like, oh my god! If it's not working, because they're tough to yeah. Do. Some of the, some of these got pretty tricky. Yeah, I mean they're hard to debug. That's the problem. You can't like set a breakpoint. You know, it's like yeah. And sometimes you get data back, and it's like I was yesterday. I ran into a situation. I would run the query and I would get data back because I was doing these calculations. But then I was like, is that the correct data? Yeah. Is, is, that the, is that the right answer or is it just an answer? <laughs> right. Because I'm, I'm dealing with number crunching on one and a half million records here. How do I know if that's actually what it's supposed to be? I know. 
Or does it just seem right? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's freaky. Makes me nervous. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. Once we get the once we get the front end interface built for it, we can we can start pulling up numbers and looking at them more easily. I think it'll be yeah easier to debug. Yeah, small date ranges, that kind of thing. All right, so a little bit of a sequel tangent for you. But uh, I guess that'll be our show for this week. Uh, I'm Jonathan Stark. I'm Kelly Shaper. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.